0: The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me this week is our producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen, how's it going?
1: Hello, Natalie. It's going well. Little change for us this week. A two-opinion day. We go from one, one day of opinions to two days of opinions.
0: That's true, and I was so excited, although I feel a little bit like it's been a letdown, because even though we had two days of opinions... We only had five opinions in total. There was only one little box on Friday. <laughs> yeah, so.
1: I think uh, I th- we were we we were gearing up for for a big week, and that's surely that's coming. I guess um, we were chatting a little bit off air. You know, uh, the procrastinator in me understands. I'm like, just push it all. Push, push it off. I'll just deal with like 15 to 20 opinions on the very last day, whatever.
0: I guess they're still, you know, doing their edits and, and and polishing up the pros, which I get, I understand. But, you know, I'm excited to see the rest of the opinions. I think we're down to 18 now. Um, I'm excited to see them come out. Although we did get a big case this week, it was the case involving the Indian Child Welfare Act. And we're going to chat about it in a minute with reporter Caleb Simmons, who's been covering the case.
1: Yeah, that was that was the big one from Thursday. There was three opinions Thursday. That was that that was the real uh, big ticket item there. Friday morning, we woke up. We thought we were probably gearing towards getting some more big ones. And that's not to say, I mean, every Supreme Court opinion is a big one. You know, um, they're important they all in matter. their own way. They, they all matter. matter. And um, so we'll run through a couple of those um, at the end of the show that we got on Friday. But I think we should just jump right into the, the, the one we got on Thursday. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a 1978 federal law which was designed to stop the state and federal practice of removing Native American children from their communities. A seven to two majority held that the law does not illegally tread on state authority in regulating child custody programs. And the opinion was celebrated by tribal leaders and civil rights advocates as a major victory for Native American rights and a protection of their sovereignty. Here to talk us through this decision and its implications is Law 360 reporter Caleb Simmons, who's been closely tracking this case. Welcome to the show, Caleb. Thanks for having me. So I just want to start here to kind of orient our listeners a little bit. Can you give us a little bit of history on what the Indian Child Welfare Act is and what it's meant to protect?
2: Yeah, the history of this law really dates back to the 19th century when the U.S. government uh, stepped up its efforts to eradicate tribal heritage and tribal sovereignty. You may have heard about uh, the Native American boarding schools. Um, those were institutions where the government really went onto reservations, took Native kids um, and enrolled them in schools off the reservation, uh, trying to assimilate them into white uh, Anglo-Christian culture. Um, That uh, effort really stepped up again in the 1950s when the government enacted a formal policy called the termination policy, trying to end tribal governments once and for all. Under that policy, uh, the government actually paid for Native American kids to be adopted into uh, white homes off the reservation. So this law was really a reaction to those efforts. Uh, It tries to keep Native American children in other tribal households.
0: And why was it being challenged at the Supreme Court? What's the background of this case in particular?
2: So a group of non-Native families uh, joined by Texas and a couple other states challenged the law saying that the placement preferences, which uh, favor placing Kids in Native American households um, in the adoption or foster care systems is racially discriminatory. So in 2018, a Texas federal judge found ICWA unconstitutional um, as racial discrimination. The Fifth Circuit partially overturned that result. uh, And actually both sides appealed to the Supreme Court, which is how we ended up with the case that came down yesterday.
1: So let's talk about the opinion a little bit that was handed down on Thursday. It was a 7-2 to majority written by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. What was the main
2: takeaway from this one? Yeah, Justice Barrett, who actually has herself adopted uh, two of her children, um, found that ICWA uh, falls within Congress's power under Article 1 to regulate family law. Um, she acknowledged that that is a power that Congress has not exercised very often, but uh, said that it falls within Congress's Article I powers. Um, The court has understood, and actually the courts in general have understood, that power to be pretty broad when it comes to Native American tribes, mostly uh, stemming from the Indian Commerce Clause. Um, So, you know, while adoption and foster care is not commerce itself, uh, the court upheld ICWA um, under that provision and others.
1: Did they speak at all to the racial discrimination point in this, or what did they have to say on that?
2: Yeah, not on the merits. This was the interesting part of the decision. Um, The court found that Texas and the non-Native families that were challenging ICWA didn't even have standing to sue based on racial discrimination. So it uh, punted on the question effectively, um, which could set up another challenge on those grounds. We'll see if that comes down eventually.
0: So whenever there is a Native American rights case, I'm always interested to see where Justice Gorsuch lands on it, just because he's been known for being an advocate for Native rights. I understand he wrote a concurrence here. Can you tell us a little bit about that one?
2: Yeah, Justice Gorsuch wrote a pretty lengthy concurrence in this case. Uh, He joined the majority in upholding ICWA, um, but he really traced the history of child separation here, going all the way back to the 19th century. You know, he, as the only justice um, from the West, has really taken a, a an eye toward the history of tribal sovereignty. Uh, he did that again in this case, and he really walked through in, in close detail why ICWA was enacted and why it's needed. Um, it was kind of an interesting concurrence from him because uh, he said very strongly That tribal sovereignty is part of the Constitution and not something that Congress can um, regulate away.
1: So I just wanted to uh, touch quickly on the dissents. Um, It was 7-2 to and Justice Thomas and Alito uh, were the dissenting justices there. Anything that particularly jumped out at you uh, from the dissenting opinions?
2: Well, Alito and Thomas focused mostly on congressional power rather than the equal protection question. Um, They both found that Congress doesn't have the ability to regulate state family law proceedings in this way. Um, Who really focused on the equal protection question was Justice Kavanaugh. He wrote a very brief concurrence, basically saying that ICWA uh, presents serious issues on those grounds. Nobody on the court joined him in that opinion, but it'll be interesting to see if ICWA comes before the court again if Alito and Thomas have an appetite for striking down ICWA based on the equal protection claim as well.
1: So this law really maybe isn't out of the woods quite yet, but I I know you've been tracking this case for a long time, and you spoke with some folks yesterday, and we had additional coverage talking about the reaction from Native American and civil rights activist communities, Can you give us a sense of just how important this ruling was? Obviously, there's very damaging history here with separating Native families. And, you know, what does this ruling really mean for Native American
2: sovereignty? Yeah, this was massive. Um, For the last few years, tribal advocates have warned that if ICWA was struck down, it could really undermine the entire basis for federal Indian law. That's because if the court found that Native American status under ICWA is uh, racial rather than a political affiliation, other laws could follow in the same in the in the same vein, um, and also be struck down as racial discriminatory. So this was really massive for Native American tribes, and I did speak with uh, some tribal activists yesterday who were extremely happy with the ruling. Um, One of them uh, is a New York attorney named Bert Hirsch, uh, who actually helped write ICWA back in the 1960s and 70s. Um, He called this ruling a colossal victory for Native American sovereignty.
0: Great. Caleb, thank you so much for helping us break this one down.
2: Thank you. So as I mentioned earlier,
1: Friday morning, uh, we woke up, we weren't sure what to expect. We got a couple of opinions, uh, not too many and not any real blockbusters, but they were important. So we wanted to uh, touch on them briefly and just kind of explain a couple of things that happened.
0: That's right. They were actually a bit of a mixed bag for the federal government. Um, In the first that dropped on Friday, Laura v. United States, the justices unanimously ruled that criminal defendants convicted of certain federal gun crimes can be allowed to serve concurrent sentences if also convicted of other crimes. And this was actually a big rebuke of the government's view that sentences must run consecutively. And Justice Jackson, who wrote that opinion, said that view departed from Congress's intentions. It's a case that hasn't gotten a lot of fanfare given this term's kind of packed docket, but will have ramifications for others who've been dealt multiple sentences where one has involved federal gun crime.
1: Yeah, I remember when this oral argument happened, and, and there were some eyes on this case, and, and it is a really an important one for, for criminal justice. Um, what was the other one that happened
0: on Friday? So, in the second one, Polanski versus Executive Health Resources, this one the government scored a win. Um, in this case, the justices ruled that the federal government has the authority to dismiss whistleblower False Claims Act cases. It initially declines to intervene in, but said it must. But the justices did give um, kind of like an, an extra little bar to them and said you have to explain you know, why you're seeking to dismiss the suit. Um, so, just a little backstory Jess Polanski had accused a United Health unit of routinely certifying more expensive inpatient care and charging that to government health care programs rather than having it performed as less expensive outpatient care. So she brought a whistleblower suit under the False Claims Act, which officially, you know, those are brought on behalf of the government. And False Claims Act obviously deals with fraud against the government. Now, the DOJ did not initially intervene, and then they sought to dismiss the case. But Polanski said the FCA, the False Claims Act, barred the government from doing so. It's a very specific case, yes, but part of an increasing trend over the last few years, um, there's kind of been a bit of a surge in whistleblower suits and the GOJ has more and more done kind of a similar playbook of not intervening and then asking for a dismissal. So Justice Kagan wrote for the majority um, and they said that the FCA allows the government to seek to dismiss a QTAM whistleblower case at any point, as long as it intervenes in the case. So it doesn't have to intervene like right at the beginning as long as it intervenes at some point um, even if it initially declined to intervene at the outset it can seek to dismiss the case justice kagan wrote quote today we hold that the government may seek dismissal of an sca action over a relator's objection so long as it intervenes sometime in litigation whether at the outset or afterward so big win for the for the government on this one
1: that is a really interesting trend that you pointed out, Natalie, and really an interesting, you know, a mixed bag of cases this week. Uh, a, a lot of important ones as we kind of work through these opinions.
0: That's right. And hopefully next week we'll see some more. I have to imagine we'll see some more. Right now, as we're recording, they haven't scheduled uh, more opinion days, but I have to imagine we'll see at least two, maybe three next week. I'm thinking
1: I'm thinking two, two or three if they want to get through the rest of this. We've got a couple of weeks left until they reach their normal end of june deadline and traditional traditional traditional, deadline yeah we'd love to see it wrapped up before the fourth of july um but uh we will see but thanks so much natalie i appreciate it talking with you today
0: Thanks, Stephen. And thanks to our listeners. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Thanks also to our guests this week, Caleb Simmons, and to reporters, Crystal Owens, Dan Wilson, and Marco Poggio, who all contributed to this episode. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law slash the term. You can also find us anywhere to listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.